something that's culture-bound, very much applicable, very much relevant to us as believers in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4 through 6, read this way. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. The word of God for us, the people of God, let us again look to God in prayer. Our Father and our God made the weak words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be transformed by your spirit to the praise of your glory in Christ Jesus in whose supreme name we pray. Amen. Think about this particular Reformation month and we think about what the Protestant reformers emphasized, what they stood for, as it were, and one of the key things that they addressed and that they affirmed and that they were unbending about was that church history and church tradition are not equal to the word of God written. Now, of course, heritage is important. The writings of the church fathers and other theologians are valuable. And yet, it is in no way on equal footing with the word of God written. We are a confessional church. We adhere to the Westminster Standards. The Westminster Standards are the framework, the interpretive grid by which we understand what the Word of God teaches about a number of things, and yet the Word of God written is superior even to that confessional standard of faith that we uphold. That's one of the truths. Word of God alone is authoritative for the thinking and the behavior, the worldview of believers in Jesus Christ. And in no way does Jesus Christ share headship over his church with the Pope or with anyone else. That, too, was emphasized by the Reformers, and many of them paid dearly for that affirmation, that declaration, that stand that they took. Jesus Christ alone is Lord. And that is not some whimsical piece of thinking on the part of the Reformers, it is part of the Word of God. We have 
looked at a portion of scripture this morning. There are many gods and lords out there. But for us, there's one God. His name is an Allah. It's the Lord God Almighty. And there is one Lord who is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. His name is Jesus Christ. Paul here addressed an extremely pluralistic audience. Pluralism was worshipped, not the God of the Bible. And Paul, without backing away, without walking on eggshells, said, There's one God, and His Son is our Lord. And he is the second person in the Trinity. And besides him, there is no avenue of salvation. There never will be an avenue of salvation apart from the Redeemer, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Savior, Christ Jesus. Now we live in a time where this sort of affirmation, this stance is frowned upon, which is ironic if not comical because people protest things all the time if you're on social media for any length of time people are protesting Trump or people are protesting a Democrat they're protesting all kinds of things politically people even protest whether or not Star Wars The Last Jedi belongs in the canon of Star Wars entertainment. People protest things all the time, and yet, somehow, in our society, in our culture, if you bring up the fact that there is one God and one way to salvation, and that Jesus Christ is the exclusive Lord and Savior of his people, and that without him people have no hope of being saved, you have somehow crossed the line. But that's what the Reformers emphasized. That's part and parcel of what it meant historically to be a Protestant. What are you protesting? We protest all that and anyone who would affirm that Jesus Christ is not exclusively Lord, that he is one of many avenues of salvation as if he didn't suffer enough in the Garden of Gethsemane when he cried out, Father, Father, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And we discount, we trivialize the uniqueness, the supremacy, and the lordship of the Messiah when we are silent, when his majesty is being mocked or ignored. We're Presbyterians and we are Protestants. We believe key truths. If these key truths are secondary or even trivial, then there is no compelling reason to be Protestant or Presbyterian. 
And it may well be that more than a few American churchgoers should just join a civic club and not become involved with a particular Christian community of faith that endeavors to serve the Lord Jesus Christ and worship God in spirit and in truth if these key truths mean little or nothing to them. For us, Paul says, there's just one God, the Father. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ. He is the author, the finisher of our faith, and the exclusive source, and the giver of salvation. Let's pray together. Lord and our God, much more can be said, but gracious God, you are the one who have sent your son, and he is everything to us. He is our all in all. May it ever be thus that we, without shame, with diplomacy to be sure, but with firmness and without shame, present Jesus as Lord and Savior so that others would appreciate all that he is and all that he has done and all that you will yet do through him for all those who truly believe in and belong to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, in whose perfect name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Pastor. Our other text for today will be from Romans 9, from verse 13. I think it's a general rule that if you've got a text, you've got a sermon. Excuse me, 9.14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Let's pray. Lord our God, we pray that you would bless the preaching and the hearing of your word, that you would open up our hearts to you, Lord God, in such a way as that we might receive the things you have for us. We know that by natural inclination we do not love you, and we do not love the word of God. But Lord God, by your spirit within us, if you strive there, you can make us receive good things and be changed. And we thank you for this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, as you know, we've been going through a bit of a sermon series. This is Reformation Month leading up to Reformation Day. For those of you who don't know the Reformation, you'll know more about it by the end of the sermon than you do at the beginning. But the Reformation is an incredible event that happened 500 years ago when the church was actually not doing very well. Now, many of you might look out at the world today or even the landscape of the United States of America and think to yourself, man, the church is a mess. Well, think of the church as being this mess times 10. That was the late 14 coming into the 1500s when everybody, even the priests, even the priests knew the church was a mess and they weren't having any of it. Now, we'll hear a little about the, possibly the most important figure next week, Martin Luther. But today we're going to talk about the most controversial figure, John Calvin. And you might think to yourself, wait a minute, if we're doing a sermon from the Bible, shouldn't we just talk about things from 2,000 years ago? Well, that's not how the Bible works. 
The Bible is not a fixed book in history to be drawn back there all the time. The data from the Bible is to be applied to exactly our contemporary situation and state. And that means everything that happened in the last 2,000 years and even today is fair game for the application of Scripture to contemporary conditions. Don't you think? And one thing we can do is we can go back and look at the great minds in history, the great pastors, and still hear their sermons from then. Someday, if I live so long, I might be talking about, you remember Gary Jones? <laughs> and read from you a text that he wrote, which was a, a great commentary upon Scripture at the time and place, right? Now, this guy, John Calvin, most people either love him or hate him. I remember I was trained as a child to hate him. Right? I grew up and my dad was a pastor in the Assemblies of God and then I kind of got all, you know, Baptist and I was still, you know, whatever that guy said, it must have been wrong because people do not like him. Then I went through a phase where I had to read the writings of everybody and one of the things I found is even the pastors in, in the Baptist church where I was kind of coming into my adulthood, I went in and there were Calvin's commentaries on the pastor's shelf and, you know, I said, Pastor, you know, why do you have that heresy up there? And he said, well... He writes a great commentary. This is the thing about this guy. Everybody might be for him or against him or just lukewarm about him, but his place in history is set. He was the first great commentator to go all the way through Scripture and say, here's what this means, and here you'll understand this text if you do this. And Every study Bible you've ever had has been a subscript to the work of John Calvin 500 years ago. We all, in a sense, are in his shadow in one way or another. It's kind of an interesting story. He was born in Noyon, France in the early 1500s. And by the time he was 12 years old, he was a priest over two great cathedrals. You might think, how in the world could that happen? This is not, and he brings this up not as a commentary upon his genius because he was never allowed to preach or teach. He brings it up as a commentary on how horrible the church was, that he was the head pastor of churches. How did he become that? His father bought him the positions with money. Interestingly, they, just like today, they had treasurers and accountants over entire cities, and his father, Gerard Calvin, was the top bookkeeper of the entire region of France there. So it was a lofty position, and he was the head accountant for the church and other things like that, and there were a few bishops of the church that wanted to seize a certain property. So they came in, and they had legal writs written up, and it was seized by the property of the church, and the owner of the property sued the church. And the church came to him and demanded the books. Now, how many of you use QuickBooks or something like that for your taxes, right? All that stuff? Well, in those days, QuickBooks was a book. And it had written in it money and accounts and all of that stuff. And the church came to him and demanded that they give him the books. And, you know, he swore an oath, not only to the church but to the people, that he would not tamper with the books. I mean, this was considered to be a sacred record. So he refused to give them the books. The next day, he was excommunicated from the church. And you guys know what that meant in those days, right? Nobody had to pay their debts to you. You were only to be buried in unconsecrated, unholy ground. Now we as Protestants know the whole earth is holy. We don't really care as much where we're buried. But at that time, it was a big deal, right? And it ruined him for the most part. He had to go into different cities and places in order to do business. But at the time, Calvin was watching these things, and he only grew in the acclaim of people. After he had gotten to Tonsure, his father decided that the field that he was in was too controversial, too ugly, too muddy, so he pulled him out of training for the clergy and put him in law school because he thought his son would do better 
in a more moral environment. That's how bad the church was. About the time that he finished law school, his father passed away. And when his father passed away, you know, they didn't have funeral homes the way we do now. So the church took care of everything. If it were those days, you know, when somebody passed away, I'd have to go in there and take care of the body and stuff. Weird. I'm glad it's not that way there. But so they took the body to the church and the church seized the body of Gerard Calvin to make sure it would not be buried in holy ground. Another part of the story is Calvin's brother, uh, Charles Calvin, was the most popular priest in that area of France. He was known for being mild of manner, gracious, kind, loving, caring for the poor. And so Charles comes to the church and he comes to the meeting and the bishops are around the table. And he requests the body of his father so that he can take his father's body to be buried. Instead, one of the bishops seated on his throne, it was a real throne, starts to insult Gerard Calvin and starts to talk about hoping that he will feel the fires of hell. And Charles Calvin, in true French tradition, he got up from his seat and he walked all the way around the long table up to the bishop and he slapped him in the face. And the next day he was excommunicated. And Calvin doesn't know what to do. He goes to his brother. He says, brother, you know, Charles tells him, look, little brother, there were four years difference between them. You stay in seminary. You're going to be a great shepherd of this flock one day. Within a few weeks, supposedly of sorrow and a broken heart, Charles dies, and both he and his father are buried in unconsecrated ground. Calvin, at the meantime, he finishes his studies. He's studying under the best pastors in Paris, France. He's preaching before kings and princes and things like that. And one day, he hears a sermon. He reads it, but it's read by one of his one of his teachers, Nicholas Kopp, at the seminary, and he reads him this sermon by this strange German named Martin Luther. Calvin's like, what? This, is, this sounds crazy. I've never heard anything like this. I've been studying theology all my life. I've never heard anything like this. So he goes and he studies and he starts reading the scriptures. He's like, oh my God, this is weird. And he said, after reading the scriptures again in a new light, for the first time, a warmth came over his body and seemed to invade his soul. And he felt like he was born again. And so Calvin, a few months later, he goes out and he does a public sermon. He thought it would be of no consequence, where he said he preached the gospel for real for the first time. And the people went crazy at it because they had never heard such a thing. And the king at the time is subject in many ways to the pope and the, and the bishops, and so they send an army. They make the king send an army to arrest John Calvin. He was, at the time, 25 years old. They come to his house where he was living. You know, in those days they lived in dorms and there was a small window in the back. And so all the other students blocked the army that was coming in to arrest him. He grabbed his books and put them in a, 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 a sheet and tied them up. You can tell what was important to him, right? And he jumped out a small bathroom window and escaping, he vet dressed himself as a vine dresser and walked all the way through France until he got to Geneva a place that was known as a place of safety for political and theological refugees. By the time he got there, he was writing a little tract where he wanted to write down what it is that he thought the Bible said, what many other people, and he believed especially the entire Augustinian lineage for a thousand years had been saying the Bible said, so that when they read it after he was dead, somebody would know what he had to say. Instead, when he gets there, a very famous pastor in the region, the one that had been the head of the Reformation there, comes to him 
and traps him in a restaurant, corners him, says to him, John Calvin, you need to be the pastor of this city. We need a pastor in Geneva. There's no one to do the work. I'm covering like 20 cities myself. You need to stay here and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to these people or there will be no one and the Reformation here will fail. And John Calvin flatly refused him. You know, he said, you know, I'm not really into all of this political stuff. I just want to write books. I just want to write books or something. After a couple of hours of trying to convince him, that pastor gets up and starts to turn, walk out. And he turns around and Calvin says, he looked into my eyes in such a way as I thought that he was invading my soul. And he said to me, John Calvin, may God curse you and your studies if you abandon the people of God in their time of need. And he walked out. And he didn't see him again for five years. But Calvin said the truthfulness of the demand shook him to his very soul. And he spent the next 35 years of his life pastoring there and writing and teaching. And he became the most influential teacher of all Protestants. No matter what you think about him, it's him. Many great scholars, one of the great scholars that wrote the analysis of the entire American experience called John Calvin the veritable founder of the United States of America. Even our government and our separation of powers, these things were his ideas. He was the first man of Europe, as they trace it back historically, the first man of Europe to ever stand up against the slave trade, saying that it destroys those that are subject to it and it destroys those that enforce it. The first one. It took hundreds of years to that to take root. But he also wrote the most influential Christian book of the last 500 years, The Institutes of the Christian Religion. This is the first chapter, first page of that text. Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. But these are connected together by many ties. It's not easy to determine which of the two precedes the other and gives birth to the other. For in the first place, no man can think of himself without forthwith turning his thoughts towards God in whom he lives and moves and have his being. Because it's perfectly obvious that the endowments which we possess cannot possibly be from ourselves. Nay, that our very being is nothing else than subsistence in God alone. In the second place, those blessings which unceasingly distill to us from heaven are like streams conducting us to the fountain. Here again, the infinitude of good which resides in God becomes more apparent from our poverty. In particular, the miserable ruin into which the revolt of the first man plunged us compels us to turn our eyes upwards, not only while hungry and famishing that we may thence ask what we want, but being roused by fear, we may learn humility. For as there exists in man something like a world of misery, and ever since we were stripped of the divine attire, our naked shame discloses an immense series of disgraceful properties in every man, being stung by the conscience of his own unhappiness. In this way necessarily obtains at least some knowledge of God. Thus our feeling of ignorance and vanity, want, weakness, and short depravity and corruption reminds us that in the Lord and in none but he dwells true light of wisdom, solid virtue, exuberant goodness. We are accordingly urged by our own evil things to consider the good things of God. And indeed, we cannot aspire to him in earnest until we have begun to be displeased with ourselves. For what man is not disposed to rest in himself 
who in fact does not thus rest so long as he is unknown to himself. That is, so long as he is contented with his own endowments and unconscious or unmindful of his misery, every person, therefore, on coming to a knowledge of himself is urged to seek God, but also to be led by the hand to find him. Now, that's a better sermon than I've ever done, and that's just page one, paragraph one. But the, the book is 1,500 pages long. And just about every pastor you've ever heard of has read it at one time or another, especially for those of you that are readers and studious. If you have not read the most influential book written in the fast, last 500 years, I would encourage you to read it. If not just for the historical nature of it, right? For the theological edification of it. It is a fat book full of good stuff. But one of the most controversial things about his writing is that he said, as all of the Reformed tradition churches, that means Reformed Baptist, that means Presbyterian, that means Anglican, that means Lutheran, that means Methodist, that means everything that came from the Reformation has this one idea that we are justified by the grace of God alone apart from our good works. What he's talking about there is none of y'all are good. You think you're pretty okay. You think you just have some bad faults and that kind of thing, but you're mostly good, so God likes you a lot. And he's saying, not so. He's saying that your salvation is by the mercy of God alone and that your goodness did not factor into it a single bit, and so you can rejoice. Every time you think to yourself, my relationship with God is in some way going to be contingent upon my personal goodness, eventually you're going to fall short in your own thinking. It will change your psychology to being a servile, fearful servant of an angry, mysterious God. But when you know that your salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, you can boldly approach the throne of grace knowing that he loves you and he embraces you with all your faults. Sure, we strive to be good, but we can't be good enough for him. But he has been good enough for us. So here in this verse 13 of chapter 9, it says, As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And then he says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice with God? Because he's saying, some people are going to say, you know, it's unjust because uh, Molly and Ricky and Debbie, they tried to be really good. But, you know, Mickey and Bobby and whoever, they weren't very good. So why should they be saved and the other be lost? The people that strive the hardest should be the ones that get salvation. And so he counters the argument. He knows it's coming, right? He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice with God because he saves people that don't deserve it? And then he says, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. You see what the Apostle Paul is doing there? He's even taking the old scriptures that we're supposed to know, and he's saying from them, look, I know some of you are going to say, God's not a good God if he saves the unjust and the wicked. But he says, look, it doesn't depend on human exertion. It doesn't depend on having goodwill. It doesn't depend on having a laundry list of good works you've done. Because God's going to have mercy on whom he's going to have mercy, and he's going to have compassion on whom he's going to have compassion. Now, you might think to yourself, that's religion, but I'm just reading the Bible here. I'm not even doing a lot of commentary on it. This is just the very words of the very God that created you and brought you into being. Would that we could accept it. 
that he's just a good God saving sinners. He's not looking for a fan club, right? Now he goes on. When you go home, you might want to read this entire chapter because if you're worried about context, the Apostle Paul will beat your brains out with context here. If you ever have seen the Apostle Paul looking for a fight, this is the chapter. And as far as I'm concerned, he wins the battle. But the battle is, are we saved by a good God who has mercy? Or are we saved by being good enough for God to love us? And we believe that we are saved by a good God who has mercy. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord our God, you are so great and you are so powerful and you are so good that we could never be good enough for you. If it were contingent upon our own measly goodness to be good enough for you, all would be lost. But you, in your great mercy, you look down on us with love. And you send your son Jesus and his person and work, Lord God, to intercede for us. In which we couldn't be perfect, we couldn't be good, but he was good and perfect for us. So that in dying for us, we receive his righteousness, even though he received our sin. And we praise you for this, this great gift that you've given us and that all of our salvation is by grace. We thank you for these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.